Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Sage Dyer, the daughter of the very well-known and popular inspirational author and teacher, Wayne Dyer. Sage is herself a writer and speaker. She's a new mother living in New York City, and she recently graduated from NYU with a degree in psychology. With Sounds True, Sage, along with her sister, Serena, have authored a new book. It talks about the story of Wayne Dyer's death, how it impacted them, and the ongoing relationship they have with the presence of their father. The book is called The Knowing, 11 Lessons to Understand the Quiet Urges of Your Soul. Take a listen. Sage, I want to start uh, this conversation together in a little bit of an unusual way, which is by sharing with you a confession. Okay. So here's what happens when I prepare for a podcast. The night before is when I finally sit down with the book. I usually don't start preparing weeks or days in advance for whatever reason. I sit down the night before and I start reading the book and then I finish the next morning. So as I'm reading The Knowing, a couple hours in, I suddenly have the realization that the next day, the day that we were originally scheduled to record together, is my father's birthday. And this is suddenly filled with so much meaning for me because your book, The Knowing, is so much about your love of your own father, Wayne Dyer, and his death and what that brought up for you and the sense that you can still feel his presence in your life and influencing you in your life. And quite honestly, the deep love that you and your sister Serena poured out in your book for your dad filled me with this deep love that I have for my dad. And it also uh, brought up quite honestly, um, a lot of grief that I didn't know was still in me because my father passed away 36 plus years ago. And it also brought up some questions for me about is my father actually an alive presence influencing my life? I actually incorporated Sounds True, and this is the end of the confession, on my father's birthday 36 years ago as a way to honor him because I started the business with money that I inherited upon his death. And I've had this, I call it a myth, an inner myth that he's helping me and the company grow and evolve. He's actually helping sounds true. So what I wanted to start off talking to you about is how do we know when we've loved somebody deeply, whether they're actually playing an active role in our life after they've died, or if that's just our imagination, it's just because we miss them and we want it to be true. I mean, that's a great question. And it's something that I contemplated so much when my dad first passed away, because as you know, um, you know, having the father that I had, I was raised on these principles that death isn't real. And, you know, I witnessed my parents both lose um, their parents. Well, my dad lose his mother, my mom lose both her parents. And 
both of them continually talked about the signs that they were receiving and how they felt their parents around them. And I remember growing up um, at the various times in my life that those uh, that, that my grandparents passed away and thinking, but do you really, you know, like, how do you know? Because I was close with my grandparents, but not in a way where it like shook me. You know, it wasn't this real deep grief that I felt um, after my dad. So when my dad passed away, I felt like I was sort of at a crossroads of, um, am I going to, am I going to believe that he's just gone and this is it? You know, is, am I going to let that skeptic side of me that always sort of existed take over? Or uh, am I going to dive into everything that I was raised on? You know, because for really the first time in my life, it applied to me in a big way. And and prior to uh, my dad passing, it didn't. My, my life was pretty smooth sailing. I mean, it, you know, we all go through our things, but I had never lost somebody like that before. And I remember uh, in the early days after he passed away, I kept having this instinct of um, just call dad. I would be, you know, deep in grief, crying and unable to feel anything positive, you know, and I, my, my subconscious mind would say, call dad, call dad. And then I'd have to, you know, realize over and over again that that's no longer possible. You will never call dad again. And after torturing myself with these kinds of thoughts, I mean, it felt like torture, you know, because you just keep saying it to yourself. And um, so after a few days of having those kinds of thoughts, I I said, okay, Sage, reality check. You're not going to ever call dad again. You're not going to pick up the phone and call him. It's not going to be the way that it was. So what, you know, but you have 30 or no, at that time, 25 years of knowing dad, what would he say to you right now? You know, if you could call him. And I felt like I got this sort of, um, this wisdom that came to me from myself, from the universe, from wherever that said, you know, you can either make this be one of the worst things that's ever happened to you. It can be a tragedy. It can be the end. It can be final. You can stay having these like fear-based thoughts of death is it. Death is the end. He's gone. Or you can choose to um, have a little bit of faith to, to, you know, open up to the idea that he could still be here around me just in a different way. And you could use this as an opportunity to grow as a person, to help other people, to be more compassionate, you know? And um, I felt like, so I I made that decision, it, not, in a, not in a moment, you know, but I started to be open to that idea of, okay, how can I see this as an opportunity to grow? How can I be open to this idea that my dad is still around me, that he might be sending me signs or, you know, on and on. And once I I did that, lo and behold, I did start to feel the signs. I did start to feel this, this knowing, truly a knowing that my father was still with me. And, and I feel it more now than I even did then, because I feel like once you get a little bit of space between the event of losing someone and that over, well, you know, my dad died suddenly. There was really no indication that his health was declining or that he was in his final days. Actually, in retrospect, there were a lot of signs that it was that he knew his time was coming, but nothing in his health indicated that. And so it was a shock, you know, but um, so once I got some space between that shock and being able to sit with what was going on, I just started to know, I don't, you know, and if someone would have said that to me before I experienced this, that skeptic side of me would have still uh, been there. And so, you know, if somebody doesn't feel like they can know that for sure, I just say that just open yourself up to the idea that it's possible. Ask the universe for signs, ask your loved ones to tell you that, that they're still with you. And then you'll, I think you'll be amazed at what happens and what you start to know, what you start to see, what you start to believe, if that answers your question. And, you know, the title of the book, The Knowing, and even as you're talking about your own experience, that you started to know in your own experience and that that's deepened. That's very powerful. I want to understand more 
what gives you this confidence that it's a knowing and not just like a pretending? I mean, yeah, because, you know, it's like, we, we have an intuition, we have, we have an inner guidance inside of us. And I think that that voice is often very quiet. It might not even be a voice. It's more of a, a feeling that, um, that you can just become more aligned with. And I think that we, so many parts of our life push us to be not aligned with that voice, you know, but it, it, so it was in losing my dad that, um, I sort of wanted to dive into these softer ways of following, you know, of living life. And, and one of the things like I can remember um, when I was, I don't know, in my early twenties, I was driving in the car with my dad and the song, I hope you dance by Leanne Womack came on the, came on the radio. One of those tearjerker songs that most of us know. And if you haven't heard it, I suggest that you listen to it anyway. And he, uh, he said, oh, this is one of my favorite songs. And he turned the radio up and he said, Sage, let's listen to every verse of this song because I, I agree with every single line in this song, you know, um, but there is one line that I don't agree with. And I want to know if you can pick it out. And in the song, it's, you know, I hope you still feel small when you stand against the mountains or I don't know all the lines, but there are just really some really beautiful poignant points that are made in this song. And so we listened to the song and I don't think I was able to pick out the one that he meant. But um, so he told me afterwards, you know, the, the one line in the song that I don't agree with is that you should she says in the song, you should never settle for the path of least resistance. He said, I just can't even fathom that idea. You should always settle for, you should always take the path of least resistance. You know, if, if the universe is offering you resistance, you should take a look at that. And, and it doesn't mean that you don't work hard or things like that. It just means like when you're feeling like you're forcing something that, that you need to take a step back and, and go more with the flow. And I, you know, I remember that after he passed away and I wanted to start to live a life that way of more of a life of allowing what, you know, needs to unfold to unfold. And, and so that's kind of how this book was born was just this idea of like, how do we tap into that, that voice? How do you tap into that knowing, like you said, I don't know how to explain that it's that, you know, if it's all happening in my imagination, it's enriched my life in such a way that I'm even okay with that, you know, but, but in my heart and in my soul, I know that it's not, I know that he is still with me. Now I want to give our listeners a feeling for your relationship with your dad, with Wayne Dyer, because I think probably most of the people listening to this will be, oh yeah, Wayne Dyer, he was that hugely popular and influential, inspirational writer, but they don't know him from your perspective as his daughter. So speaking as his daughter, tell us uh, who you experienced your father to be. My father was one of the funniest and most fun and joyful humans to be around that you could ever imagine. I mean, and he was brilliant. And, uh, you know, when I was, when I would be with him, especially as I got older, I would go out, you know, he lived in Hawaii and I lived mostly in New York or in Florida and I would go out and stay with him. And I would just, you know, I'd get up in the morning, I'd put on my workout clothes. I'd say, I'm going to go for, I'm going to go exercise. I'm going to go for a walk or, you know, whatever. And I wouldn't be able to leave. I'd feel so drawn to his energy. I mean, he was just, uh, he was just somebody who drew you in you know, little things like uh, he would floss his teeth every day, every morning and every night. And he would chase me with his floss and say, you know, you could sell this on eBay. Somebody would pay for this on eBay and trying to get it all over me or, you know, um, it's just uh, he and he would get into things like, uh, you know, towards the end of his life, he was into coffee enemas. Um, so this is kind of a weird thing and maybe something you don't share with everybody. You're literally putting coffee in your rectum and it goes into your colon and all that. And it has all these health benefits, but 
So, you know, but he would share it with everybody. So everywhere we went, he's talking about these coffee enemas and he's talking about, oh, you know, he should have, it should be Folgers in your butt, not Folgers in your cup. And <laughs> he's going to start a coffee chain called Star Butts. And I don't know, it's just, it's, and then aside from the, the fun side of him was just this um, person who, who, was the biggest presence of love and support that you could really imagine because both of my parents, uh, they never put pressure on me or any of my siblings. I have seven siblings. I'm the youngest. Um, they never put pressure on any of us to live a certain kind of lifestyle. There was just, there was an expectation to be kind and to be loving and to be um, following our passions and our dreams, but there was not an expectation to date a certain kind of person to go to college or not go to college to, you know, a lot of these pressures that, um, I think people grow up with, we didn't have that in our family. And I knew if I called my dad or my mom with any kind of problem that there would be, um, first and foremost, a respect for, who I am as a person, even if I was just a kid or a teenager, you know, and um, that kind of love and support, I think, fosters somebody in a way that uh, really allows them to flourish. The love that you and your sister have for your father that you write about so extensively in the knowing, it really came through, really came through in a powerful way. Really yeah. beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it would be hard for it not to because it's that's it's just so real. I mean, when I got back, uh, I when my father passed away on August 30th, I had just been traveling with him in New Zealand and Australia for three weeks, which was such an exciting trip. And we just had so much fun, an amazing trip, an amazing time. I saw him speak um, six or seven times throughout a three week period. And he was just so full of life. And um and that and that's why when when you know I got the news we I got back I think on August 28th so on August 30th I find this out it was just really hard to believe because somebody who was so alive and fun you know that they're gone but we've come a long way from there so now you mentioned uh, a little earlier in our conversation that although his death was a total shock to you when it happened that in retrospect there were these signs that perhaps he had some premonition, maybe even semi-consciously or unconsciously. Tell me a little bit about that. What gave you that conviction that Wayne knew that he might not be long for this earth? I could give you two really specific examples that pertain to me and my siblings have even more. But um, so, so I was in graduate school. I had just started graduate school when my dad passed away, I was actually starting it two days after, you know, my semester was starting September 2nd. He passed away August 30th. And so I had graduated college and I was going to grad school and my, um, I was fortunate. All my siblings were fortunate to have a family who paid for them to go to college if they wanted to. And my dad also agreed to pay for me to go to uh, graduate school. And, um, for all of my siblings, starting from my sister, who's in her fifties now, down to me, he uh, paid. He paid for our tuition in the same way. He would um, he would have us write out our budget for a one semester and and like you know rent, food, whatever, and and then he and then figure out what our tuition would cost, and he would give us a check that was supposed to last us the whole semester. He wanted to teach us about budgeting money. He said, I'm not just giving you a credit card that you can swipe and put whatever you want on. You need to at least learn how to manage money if I'm going to pay for it, you know? And I realized how fortunate we, we all were to have that. But, um, so we had this system of doing that. And so every, you know, September, he would give me a check for the fall semester and every January, he would give me a check for the uh, for the winter semester, and um, or the spring semester. <laughs> and so uh, when he when he let's see, it was the feb it was the February the January before he passed away. I was finishing college, and he he gave me a check for. 
that semester as we always do it, did it. I was out in Hawaii. I was visiting him and he said, okay, here's the check. Make sure this lasts you through the summer and, and I'll give you another one in uh, September for grad school. So uh, he, we, I took the check. I said, thank you so much. I went home and I deposited in my account. About a week later, maybe even less, I was back in New York and he called me and he sounded very, um, he sounded like he was in a very serious mood. And he just got straight to the point and he said, Sage, I just mailed you a check for all of your remaining semesters uh, for graduate school. And I want you to deposit that check and I want you to make sure that it lasts you. Don't come to me for more money between now and then. And so this was, we're talking two and a half years of tuition that he was giving me all at once. It was a, an insane amount of money. I mean, I, I went to NYU. It's not an inexpensive school. And he had never done this before. And so I said, Dad, wait, that's got to be so much money. You know, I can't even fathom accepting that from you right now. Like, why, why are you, why? Why, are we, why change it? We've been doing it this way for so long. And he said, if something were to happen to me, I want to know that the promise that I made to put you through graduate school is kept. And I won't be able to, to sleep at night or to rest unless I know that you have that money and can and finish your, you can finish your school. And I fought him on it. I said, Dad, that's crazy. Nothing's gonna happen to you. Why, why are you even talking like that? You know, I said, you're young, you're healthy. This is, I said, I'll just rip up the check when I get it. And he said, Sage, I insist that you deposit that check. Um, and I remember I, so we got off the phone, I called my mom and I thought she was going to take my side and say, he's being crazy or he's being dramatic. But even she said, well, then honey, you better listen to him, deposit the check, you know, put it in another account if you have to. So I did, I opened a separate checking account. I put the money in a separate checking account because I didn't want to think I was Miss Moneybags over here and <laughs> blow through this money. You know, I was in my twenties and you know, whatever. And I sort of forgot about that. But then um, for the time being, because again, this was February of January or February of 2015. And, and then he, he passed away August of 2015, August 30th. He knew, you know, he had to know if he hadn't have given me that money for the tuition, I wouldn't have had it. I don't know. You know, I probably would have come up with it for a semester, but maybe I wouldn't have finished that school because I wouldn't have wanted to take out student loans. And, you know, it's just to reflect on that, that he knew that there was a part of him that knew that his time was coming, you know? And when I, when I realized that, um, it actually brought me a great deal of comfort. I mean, it, it brought a lot of tears to my eyes, but it brought me a lot of comfort in recognizing that, you know, everything he spoke about is true. We come here on time and we leave on time. You know, we all come here with a round trip ticket nobody gets out alive. And when somebody, when one of us is born or a baby is born, you don't question at all the, that they're born. You say, how beautiful, the baby is here, you know, right on time. And, but when somebody dies, I think we spend a lot of time saying and thinking, what if, you know, what if I had done this differently? Or what if he had seen the doctor? Or, what if he wasn't alone that night, you know, or whatever it was, what if, you know, if, if it was a car accident, what if he didn't get in the car, you know, if I would have gone there first, but I think this is just um, a silly exercise because I think the universe works in perfect divine timing and order and realizing that my dad had known somewhere inside of him that his time was coming and that he likely wouldn't have given me another check for my tuition and living expenses, or maybe he would have given me one more, but then after that, not um, really helped me hone in on that idea that, okay, this was in divine order, you know? Now you mentioned there were a couple things. It sounds yeah. like there was another thing as well. Was, what was this? What was the second thing? So the second thing was um, his last text messages to my sister and I, um, like I said, we had been, my dad and I spoke on the phone more than we text because he was not uh, technologically savvy. Um, but we did text occasionally. And he, uh, 
we had been in Australia and when we were leaving Australia to, he was going back to Hawaii and my sister and I were going back to the East coast. So we were on different flights and he left that night and we were leaving in the morning and he sent a text um, to my sister and I, uh, I don't have it on me right now, but it was basically saying, you know, I love you guys. I'm so proud of you. I had such a great time. And then he said in there, uh, you know, things like that. And then he said in there something along the lines of, um, I'm looking forward to some rest from this long eviction. Phase one is now complete. And uh, he sent it in a group text to my sister, Sky and I, because we, we were the ones who were in Australia with him. And when I read that, um, you know, I, we were together, my sister Sky and I were together and I thought we both looked at each other. It was like, that's weird. What does he mean? But we, you know, thought we talked about it. We're like, well, he probably means that, and I'll give you a little background information. Um, he ha- he owned a condo in Maui. That's where he lived. It was in a condominium building. The building was shut down at the time because they were replacing all the water pipes. So nobody could live there. And, um, So for four months, he wasn't able to live in his home and he was going to be traveling a lot of those four months. So in between the traveling, he was renting a hotel uh, next door to where his condo was. And so when when I read that, I thought like, okay, maybe he means um, looking forward to some rest from this long eviction from my condo. But even though he wasn't going back to his condo, or this long eviction from Maui, his home and a place that he really loved. And and that's sort of what I chalked it up to mean. And when he said phase one is now complete, I thought, well, he means phase one of this was like the Australia, New Zealand tour. Then there was going to be a Europe tour. So he means phase one of these tours. And, and that was that. But then about 48 hours later, or possibly less, he passed away suddenly. And when somebody dies, um, I think most of us cling to whatever we can from them. So I obviously went immediately back to read text messages and emails and anything that I could get that had his spirit in it, you know? And I read those text messages again and I thought, wow, that's such a, he wasn't talking about his eviction from Hawaii. He was, I think his higher self was talking about his eviction from God. I mean, because, you know, I had just been with him in Hawaii, I'm sorry, in Australia, hearing him speak at all these events. And he talked so much about death, the beauty of death, um, how he looks forward to it in a way, but looks forward to it on one hand, but is also thinks life is very valuable on the other, but how he looks forward to it because he knows that it's just this ultimate submersion into love and, um, beyond our wildest dreams type of love. And um, so, you know, I think that that's what he was referring to in, the, in in these last written words that he wrote to me before he, you know, before he died, that he was, this was something he was looking forward to. And when you, phase one is now complete, I thought, okay, phase one, what's phase two? And, and I was couple weeks later having a conversation with my dad's good friend D who was also his um, assistant and very good friend and um and co-author of of a book and she was telling me about how they watched this documentary on uh, people who were spending their life in prison who had lifetime prison sentences and um she said that she asked him if you had to choose would you rather spend your life in jail or die And that he said, I would rather spend my life in jail because all life is valuable and all life has meaning. Um, But, but that I look forward to the next phase. And, and I said, are you sure he used those words next phase? And she said, I'm sure because I thought about it so much, you know, this like sort of paradoxical idea that he valued life so much but also looked forward to the next phase. And, um, and then this got me, I mean, I could keep going. This got me on this whole tangent looking into paradoxes because my dad wrote a book about um, the Tao. And in the introduction, 
Um, so I discovered this a couple weeks later in the introduction to that book, it's change your thoughts, change your life. He talks about how the Tao, if you read it is basically just one paradox after the other, you know, it's, um, ideas that conflict, but that to, to, you need to approach this because we, we come from this Western mind of thinking, and this is sort of more Eastern style thinking and you need to approach it from the place of you know paradoxes are not opposite ends they're they're not uh they're not mutually exclusive ideas they're not opposites they're in fact just different ends of a continuum and they're necessary components of each other and and he gives gives this example of um you know it's like you can desire something you have a desire and you, uh, and that, so there's this idea of desiring, and then there's this idea of allowing, and they seem like opposites. Like desiring would be thinking about it, getting it, wanting it, doing something about it. Allowing would be allowing it to come to you, allowing it to flow. But that, in fact, you know, according to the Tao, these are two things that are necessary components of each other. You have a desire, like you have a desire to go to sleep because you're tired, and then you get into bed, but then you allow the sleep to come to you, you know? And um, and if you sit there and you keep thinking about how badly you want to go to sleep, we've all had this experience where sometimes the sleep eludes you, you know? The allowing is a big part of getting what you want, and not just with sleep, with everything in life, you know? You can desire to become a doctor but it's not going to happen tomorrow. You know, you have to allow time and, and so on. So, you know, so, so D told me that about him calling it the next phase. And then I read this about the paradoxes and I, and I really just thought more and more about these last texts and thought, you know, he knew his time was coming. He was letting us know phase one is complete. I'm on to the next phase, you know? Now, interestingly, you uh, mentioned the date, August 30th, and you do some interesting forensic work that you share in the book to describe how this date, the date of your father's death, August 30th, was very significant, actually, in his personal biography. And, you know, it's, I'm just sharing this once again with our listeners. I read this book on the anniversary of my father's birthday. what the, I had a one in 365 chance of that happening. That's weird. So I want to hear about the date, August 30th, but I also want to understand what you think in general of these kinds of, we can call them synchronicities. You mentioned that your father, Wayne, said that synchronicities are like winks from God. And it certainly felt that way to me. I felt like I was getting a wink feels that way, but how do you understand synchronicities and tell us about the date, August 30th? Yeah, synchronicities, I love synchronicities Synchronicities because I think it's, it's when you're aligned, it's when you're allowing, it's when you're flowing that things get in sync. You know, it's like kind of what we were talking about before this um, not resisting. You know, when you're resisting, you get out of sync. And, and my dad was uh, really, really into that. And I was raised on this idea of, um, you know, there's an energy behind things. Like when you're called to do something and it's your, it's your passion and it's your calling, things line up, dormant forces come alive. You know, you, you, it just works out for you. You know, it's meant to be. And when things aren't meant to be, you're pushing and you're forcing and it's not you know, and probably not feeling so synchronistic. So I think these ideas all sort of go together. And um, when it comes to, no, you know, and, and coincidence is sort of another word that people use for synchronicities. And my dad um, always would say that, you know, the word coincidence is such a misused word in our society and in our language, because uh, the word coincide it, it's a mathematical term and it refers to two angles that fit together perfectly. They coincide. And we've taken this word coincidence to mean two things that happen accidentally. But in reality, it's, it's two things that happen perfectly on time. So when you find yourself saying like, hmm, is this a funny coincidence? Don't question it. It's not a coincidence. It was 
perfect. It was, it, that, it was synchronistic. You're in the flow, you know? And yeah, like you said, with the numbers, I mean, that's wild that you read it on your dad's birthday. And I think the listeners will understand after I share this story. Um, my dad was really into numbers, synchronistic signs with numbers. And I am also, I like numbers. I've always been good at math. And um, my dad loved the number 18. He, you know, it's in a lot of um, scripture and different you know, it's one infinite source, the number one, the number eight, it's the infinity signs. There's one infinite source, no matter what you want to call it, God, Theos, anything like that, it all comes down to one infinity. And um, so that was a powerful number to him. And just to give you a funny example, he was always trying to, uh, he would go for a jog every day and he would time it on a stopwatch on his wrist and he would always try and get the, at the 18th minute, he would pause in his run and try and get the clock to the stopwatch to stop at 18 minutes, 18 seconds and 18 milliseconds, you know, and it was just like a fun game he played with himself. And then one day he got it. He took a picture of it. He sent it to the whole family, which is a big deal for him because he wasn't good at sending pictures, you know, and he just included a funny email that, um, that we, we included in the book. Cause it was just, it showed, you know, his funny personality, but also how into numbers he really was. And um, so when he died on August 30th, I thought like, you know, the skeptic in me was like, well, if everything he taught and everything that he said is true, then there would be meaning behind the date, August 30th. And I couldn't figure it out at first. Um, you know, the numbers don't really add up to anything, 8.30, I mean, yeah, 8, the number 8, but 30, it didn't, none of it had a lot of meaning. And so I asked uh, my dad in the universe, and I prayed, and I said, show me the meaning behind why you chose August 30th uh, to leave this this earth, and what were you trying to tell us by leaving on that day? And when I discovered what it was, I mean, it was unbelievable. Um, so I, after he passed away, I decided to read his book, I Can See Clearly Now, which was a memoir, which is also an, an incredible thing. And I'll just say quickly, because he was writing this memoir when he was like 73 years old. He said, I, I'm going to write a memoir. And well, first he said he was done writing books. And we thought, okay, if you want to be done writing books, you've been writing your whole life, you deserve to be done, you know. But ironically, like two days later, he was back at the writing table. And he said, I'm being called to write another book. I can't believe it. I was done. And here I am taking on a a big endeavor, but so he's writing, he writes his, uh, his memoir. I can see clearly now. And I was out with him in Hawaii when he wrote a lot of this book. So I felt very called to read it, um, because I knew how much he put into it to get it done before he left, you know, just a couple years, you know, by the time it came out within a year. Um, and in the book, when he, he, he tells a story about how, uh, my father's father, so my grandfather, his name was Melvin Lyle Dyer. My dad never met him. He left when my dad was a baby. Um, my dad had two older brothers and his mother. And when his mother came home from the hospital with him, he left within a few weeks. And he, you know, he was an alcoholic and he wasn't a good father when he was being a father. But my dad never met him. And he as he got older and was a teenager and a young man, he had a lot of anger and resentment towards his father. Um, he said that he used to have nightmares about him, uh, where nightmares where he'd be strangling him or beating him up or screaming at him and demanding, you know, please, why did you leave me? Just demanding an explanation. Why didn't you ever care to know that you had this son, Wayne, and your and his other two sons? But um, so it tormented him for a lot of his life. And when he was in his 30s, um, yeah, when he was in his early 30s, he, uh, well, sorry, let me backtrack a little. He, His father was still alive for a period of time, and he was trying to find him, and he was never able to find him. And he even went to his grandmother's funeral thinking, like, my father won't miss his own mother's funeral, but he didn't show up. And he was never able to find him. And then he learned that he died. He was contacted when he passed away. 
and it, it, he thought it might give him closure, but it didn't. The, the dreams didn't stop. The anger didn't stop, you know. Um, and then when he was in his early 30s, uh, he found out that his father was buried in Biloxi, Mississippi, that he actually had a grave. He didn't know. Um, and then co coincidentally, he had a, a work opportunity in Mississippi and, um, he was given, you know, an opportunity to go down there and do something. They said, do you want to take it? And he said, yes, because he was looking for an excuse to go to Mississippi anyway, because he wanted to, to visit his father's grave. And, um, there was a whole series of crazy coincidences that took place for him to find his father's grave and something in the rental car. There was a business card and the business card happened to be for the candlelight Inn, which is where his father was buried. I mean, all these wild things that um, I don't want to mess any, up any of the details so you can find it and I can see clearly now, but um, so I'm reading this book. I'm reading him tell this story. And, and he goes on to say that he visits, and this is a story that I knew, but I didn't, there was a part of it I didn't know. Um, so he, he goes and he finds his father's grave eventually, and he gets there and his intention is to literally piss on his father's grave. He's angry. He wants to get all this anger out and yell and scream at him and, you know, you know, condemn him for leaving. And how could you do that to a woman at that time? It's not so easy for a woman to support three children and on and on and on. And so he does that and he gets angry and he yells at him for an hour or two hours or whatever. And then he decides, okay, I did that. Now I'm going to leave. And he was walking away from his father's grave. And he said that something called him back. Something bigger than him said, no, you need to go back. You can't leave it at this. So he turned around and he walked back to the grave and a feeling of an overwhelming presence, feeling of love just sort of took over his body and he started crying and tears were coming down his face and it came out of nowhere. I and mean, he went from having nothing but anger towards this man to all of a sudden having this loving, loving presence just like sort of enveloping him and he felt called to forgive his dad in that moment and he uh, and he did and he said out loud you know dad I forgive you he said from this moment forward I send you nothing but love and um and he 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 said that he then he eventually left and he carried that feeling of love and forgiveness with him and that his whole life changed from that point uh, his career started to take off. He wrote his first big book. Um, he got into a, a healthier marriage and on and on and on. The date that he went to his father's grave was August 30th in the 1960s. And he says in the book, in his own words, he says, if you were to ask me the most significant day of my life and experience of my life, it is the events that took place on August 30th. I think it was 1967. And I read that and I thought, oh my God, you know, he had this wild experience with his father on August 30th that shifted his whole relationship with his father. Even though his father wasn't alive, it was still a relationship that he had. You know, it went from one of anger and hate to one of love and forgiveness and and really allowed him to flourish into, into, into the man that he was meant to be. And I felt like when I contemplated this, this idea and when I told my whole family, I said, you know, I think what he was telling us was August 30th is not the day that your relationship with your father ends. It's the day that it changes to take on a whole new meaning, just like it did for him with his father. And, you know, having that realization and a lot of these other realizations that we've already talked about, the tuition in the last text, these are what opened my eyes um, from being this skeptic to just being a believer and to, to, to wanting to continue to, to foster this relationship that, um, that, I, that I knew I could have with my dad if I chose to have it. You know, I could choose to just see him as he's gone 
or I could choose to see this as a change in our relationship. And choosing that has made all the difference. You offer a quote in the book uh, from your father. There's a lot of great lessons from your father that you weave throughout the whole book. But here's the quote. If you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And as you were talking about your decision to change the way you looked at your father's death, I thought of that quote. It seems like that's a very important teaching for you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yes, we write about that a lot in the book. And it was a big thing that I learned, you know. Um, again, this is something I grew up hearing from my dad. It's one of his most famous lines. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And it couldn't be more true. I mean, you can find yourself in any circumstance. It doesn't have to be death. It can be anything. It can be you lost your job your marriage broke up or, or your relationship or, you know, um, anything like that. And you can, a situation that on the surface seems like it's just fraught with sadness or grief or anger. And you can decide that, no, this my losing this job is not going to be me, you know, fumbling into to nowhere and looking for a job. It's going to be an opportunity. I wasn't that happy at that job anyway, you know, and just when you can shift your perspective, I mean, it's like, it's like the catalyst that takes a whole new meaning to your thoughts, take on a whole new meaning. They, they start to just go in a different direction, but it, I think it does take making a conscious decision to see it differently, to change the way you look at things. You know, once you make that conscious decision, it sort of unfolds from there. Now, Sage, I want to ask you a super personal question. I hope it's okay, which is, here we are, we're having this conversation about your book, The Knowing, and really it's about your life and your relationship with Wayne Dyer, your father. Can you feel him now, right now, as we're having this conversation? Do you feel a sense of his presence? And if so, what does that feel like? You know, I do. I do. And and I don't feel it all the time. I'm not going to say that I do, but I feel it when I'm in alignment. And I mean, we talk about this in the book because we don't always feel good. You know, like life is, you know, life has ups and downs. But I find that when I am in a state of joy or purpose, um, that I, I feel him so much more and I feel a lot of things so much more. And, and it feels like, it just feels like a knowing. It just feels like a knowing that, you know, in this moment, I would say it feels like pride. I mean, I, my dad and especially my dad, I mean, both my parents, but they always made us feel good about our accomplishments or big and small, you know? And I know that he would be so proud of me in this interview, I know that he would, and and proud of me and Serena for writing this book and sharing his messages and making them our own. And and I feel that right now. I feel that sort of pride. I mean, I write about it in the book. The first time that, because people say that I feel my loved one with me, or I feel my husband, or I feel my my son, or whatever it is with me right now. I always questioned that because I couldn't imagine. But how do you know that you feel them? And I and I had an experience where I felt my dad for the first time a couple months after he passed away where I just knew he was with me in that moment. And I couldn't explain how I knew, but it's just, you know, when you know someone your whole life, you know what their love feels like. And that feeling is the same when they leave, you just start to feel their love. And, um, and I think there are ways to sort of harness that, ability to tap into that. And I think they are through meditation through, like I was saying before, um, because, because when you meditate, you slow down your mind, you know, our minds can be going, 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 going. It leaves no space for your loved ones to have you feel them or to sort of speak to you. I said, cause sometimes I, and I, this might sound crazy to some people, but I feel like I hear my dad speaking to me in my thoughts and that, 
you know, but because my I the re, the way that I can um, differentiate it from my thoughts to him speaking to me is like I wouldn't refer to myself as honey, you know, and I don't talk to myself that way in my head. Um, so I've had a few experiences like that where I feel like he is speaking to me um, or even just joking with me, but it doesn't happen when I'm go 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 or when I'm. Uh, really upset or really fixated on something. It happens when I'm a little slowed down a little bit, more in tune with the moment. And how do you slow down? I mean, for me, it's it's meditation because that's how you, you know, that's the whole point of meditation is slowing your thoughts down, stopping your thoughts if you can, if you're that well practiced into it. And I think that um, it's like it's the space between the notes is where the magic happens. It's the space between these thoughts that, that, that allow for you to know these sorts of things that your loved one is with you right now or speaking to you or on and on. I want to talk to that uh, person who's listening, who uh, is like, okay, I'm going to open up a little bit more, but uh, truth be told, I have yet to have an experience of this person who's passed that I could call a knowing. I can't call it a knowing. I haven't had that experience yet. And I've already learned some things from this conversation, slowing down, opening up. You mentioned uh, talking, talking directly, uh, asking for a sign, anything else that uh, might invite that kind of knowing into the listener's life. Yeah, I mean, I think you just summarized a lot of, because I don't think it's one way. I think it's um, it's a shift. I mean, it started for me when I surrendered to what was, you know, when I stopped fighting and resisting. Because when you lose somebody, um, I think it's just natural for your conscious and subconscious mind to resist it. I can't tell you how many dreams I had where, I would find my dad and he would be alive. And I would say, oh my God, everyone thinks you're dead. Or, um, or I would find, you know, in my, I would have a dream where if he just did this, he didn't have to die. I mean, it, I don't have them anymore. But at the beginning, it was nightly dreams about my dad, convincing him not to die, discovering that he wasn't dead. And it's because I hadn't accepted it, you know, to me, death meant bad meant the end you know and and it was when i started to contemplate this idea of death as not being the end as not being bad but as just being part of life and when i surrendered to the circumstances that i was in could because we're in them regardless i mean there was nothing i could do to bring him back and got to the point where i just said um you know, I'm going to, I need to stop resisting this. I need to stop fighting it. That it is, it, there's nothing I can do to change it. And sort of, and look, let me just say grief is important and it's real and feeling what you feel is, is so important. Feel what you're feeling, have the tears and the sadness. I'm not saying you need to just um, feel joyful right away, but, but, but having the awareness that it's also okay to feel joyful and, and to surrender to the experience that you're in, I think opens the door for these, these experiences, signs and so on. I mean, when you read our book, you'll see, I've barely, I think touched the iceberg of what we go into in, in the book. Um, and I can't believe we're coming up on an hour here, but, uh, I think a big, you know, it's, it's quieting the mind. It's asking your loved ones to give you a sign to let them know that they're with you with a, a sign that you can't doubt, you know, not something like, Oh, you know, I, I've got a lot of feather signs from my dad, but you can find yourself questioning feather signs, think, things like that. Or it's just having some of these knowings ask for them, you know, quiet your mind, surrender to the, to, to whatever the circumstances are that you're in and ask. What's a sign that you got after your father's death that you couldn't doubt? Not a feather, but something else. You were like, okay, I can't doubt that one. Yeah, um, I'll try and make this one quick. I 
when we were traveling throughout Australia and New Zealand, I, we were, um, my dad's publishing company was Hay House and they were, they put that trip on. It was a Hay House speaking tour. So they paid for my sister Sky and I to go with him and they paid first class for the whole trip. It was incredible. I've never flown first class and international first class is, um, you know, it's really the way to go. <laughs> it's lay down flat beds. It's meals and champagne and warm nuts and towels, PJs, the whole thing. So my dad loved to tease us about this first class. He would say like, do not get used to this first class treatment, you know, um, or he would be sitting in our, in our beds and he would say like, Oh, are you enjoying yourself over there with your blanket and, um, your comforter and your warm nuts and your champagne. And we, you know, he loved to just tease us with stuff like that. And so it was a big theme of this trip, this like, first class treatment that we were getting. And after he passed away, um, you know, when he passed away, he was in Hawaii. I was in New York. I immediately flew to Florida. But then a few, about a week later, we decided as a family to go to Maui. And um, Serena and her husband had a, a baby six months old or yeah, around six months old or actually less. And uh, like four months old. And th so they decided to book first class because um, because of having the baby and whatever. Serena tried to convince me to, to upgrade my ticket to first class. We were on a different flight than the rest of my family. And I told her that I was definitely not doing that because it was not in the budget. And um, I was like, I could sleep standing up right now. I'm so tired. I hadn't been sleeping well in those early days. And I said, I'm not doing it. And uh, I knew she wanted me in first class. I knew she wanted me near them. So I would take care of her, her baby for her. <laughs> and I said, no, I'd rather be back in coach without a baby. And so um, when we got to the airport in the morning, Serena and Matt, her husband checked in for their flight and they were on a different reservation than me. And she's taking her ticket and saying, Oh, aren't you jealous seat, you know, three or whatever. And um, also just one more thing when we were in Australia, when we were doing all these first class seats, my dad told us that he always, his travel agent knew to always give him seat two B because he just liked to make the joke. Am I in seat two B or not to be? <laughs> okay. So in most of these flights, he was in seat two B. So then fast forward back to, we're checking in for this flight to Maui. And, um, and so they check in, they get their seats. I go to check in they do the whole thing. And the, the flight attendant, um, the employee hands me my ticket and she says, enjoy first class. And I said, I, she said, you know, here's your license. Here's this, that, the other, enjoy first class. And I just stood back for a second. and was like, first class, do I say something? I didn't book, book first class. I didn't pay for first class, you know? And so I just sort of backed away slowly and went up to Serena and was like, I'm in first class. I don't know how that happened. Did you upgrade me? And she was like, no, I didn't upgrade you. And um, we were flying on an airline, Virgin Atlantic or Virgin America. I had never flown on it before. So it's not like I would have gotten upgraded or something like that. And um, I looked at my ticket and it was seat 2B. And I felt like, I mean, I knew in that moment that my dad had done something to make that happen. However, you could do that from the other side. And and I started crying because I felt like what he was saying to me was, I'm always taking care of you. You know, I'll always take care of you. Because there was a big part of me in those early days. You know, I was 25. I was the youngest of my siblings. I felt like, how could you leave me when I still had so much left of my like formative years? You know, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I just felt like I still needed him. And I, so I had a lot of this sort of anger towards him that I had to deal with of, how could you leave me when I still need you to take care of me a little bit? You know, I'm 25. I'm not a child, but I'm not fully an adult. I'm not on my own, you know? And, um, and I felt like in that moment, that's what he was telling me. I'm always taking care of you. Beautiful. What a great story, Sage, to be or not to be. And you clearly got the seat that says to be to be. I've been speaking with Sage Dyer along with her sister, Serena Dyer Pisoni. They've written a beautiful new book, heart expanding book. It's called The Knowing, 11 Lessons to Understand the Quiet Urges of Your Soul. 
Sage, thank you so much. Thank you for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Tammy. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.